Hello, everyone. Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, and it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com. That's Bazaar Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. Clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports bizarre. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperada. So like the sports bizarre audience. <laughs> it's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy. Uh, being joined as always, doing the heavy lifting, it's Titus O'Reilly. Well, we're back after the America's Cup. Are we not going to talk any America's Cup? We're done on the... I it, miss it, it already. <laughs> the, it, was a, it was a deep dive. Are you going to watch it this year? I've been watching the uh, Challenge series at the moment. It's on at the moment. If you were travelling forward in time, imagine Alan Bond or any of those guys watching it now. What the hell? Because now, if you haven't seen it, they're on the. I know you have, but if any listeners haven't seen it, they go on the hydrofoil. So it goes, the boat's barely out of the water. And the wind the other night, they're doing all the Challenge series at the moment off Spain. The wind drops so low. If the wind's not high enough, you can't get up on the hydrofoils. You're on your hull. Yeah. And these boats aren't designed to do that. So they were all <laughs> doing this race and it was the slowest race because these boats <laughs> just can't do it. And so they're all the and the commodores are trying to make it exciting. Imagine turtles racing. It was like, <laughs> oh, and he's got to make a decision here because in four hours they could collide. <laughs> because normally if you fall off one of those things, you could die. They're all wearing they're, helmets. They're so fast. They are wearing yeah. helmets. And yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Crazy. But uh, we've got, talked about something where you definitely could die. Okay, today. now, so just uh, full disclosure, I have no idea what you're about to you don't even put know on the, the table. Is, I have no idea, so I'm very excited. I feel right now like you do at home listening. Here we go. <laughs> and me researching. Now, what we're going to talk about is on at the moment as this is going out, yeah. the Rugby World Cup is on Correct. in France. Uh, you it know, is. and as we're recording this, Australia just lost to Fiji. Yeah. So you and I, have, our interest is <laughs> low on it this year. Yeah, it's not voting well. It's not going well. So I thought what I'd do is I'd talk about because one of the things you got twenty teams over there at the moment yes. competing, and they're competing for the Webb Ellis Cup. Yep. So a lot of people might not, if you're not a rugby fan, that is the cup you win if you win the World Cup in rugby. So this is rugby sure. union, not league, for anyone that's not across that. So it's named after, the Webb Ellis Cup is named after a guy named William Webb Ellis and he is the man credited with inventing rugby. So he okay. is the guy that I like these origin the stories. How did this occur? I'll have a You guess. have a crack and then I'll call you. Uh, private school, England, yeah. uh, between terms, borders, board, get out. Decide uh, to chuck the pigskin round. Am I close? <laughs> You're very close. Very close. So it was a, it's private school in Australia. They're called public schools in the UK. Yeah. And he was at a school as a 16 year old in 1823. <laughs> so just before yours and my time. All the good stories you they tell all, come yeah. from 1800s. That seemed to be a very prolific time to be inventing well, you, games. You and I and stuff. Had, Children of the 80s, 70s slash 80s, right? So yeah. we remember how little parents cared about their kids then. Yeah. You go back up to 1823, well, the parents really did. <laughs> they made the 80s yeah. parents look Be like helicopter. home by Easter. Yeah, they made the 80s parents look like helicopter parents. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he was 16, he was at school, and he was at the rugby public school. So it was oh, an so school, school called cool. rugby. They had a, a game of football that was occurred. This is the story of how it was invented. Yeah. They're playing this game and he picked up the ball and ran with it. 
and this was illegal when at the time. To, yeah, it was actually illegal. It wasn't exactly like soccer. It was a variation where you could catch the ball, but then you had to put the ball on the ground and what kick was he it thinking? forward. He just caught the ball and ran into the end goal area and scored, <laughs> He's right? He's gone mad. And the story is the teachers were so impressed by his creative thinking here that they actually changed the rules and the sport of rugby union as it is now, they were but impressed. rugby at the time. I would get detention You would get that. detention, right? I would get beaten up by the other kids. <laughs> exactly. So that's the story. So he, this innovative student as a 16-year-old, William Webb Ellis, picks up the ball. Good on him. Scores and invents this new style of football that becomes rugby. This is the story and that is why right to this day the Webb Ellis Trophy in France is being celebrated. So that's our biggest origin story it is and how important it is to rugby that they've named their number one trophy after it. Fantastic. Only problem is none of it's true. <laughs> what? It's you... completely false. Thank you. Uh, that was a great episode. So uh, anyway, why would you do that to me? The story of how rugby came around is way more interesting, oh. and how this became the myth, the origin story of rugby is interesting too. Oh. So we're going to unpack this, and you are going to love this because this has got shenanigans galore. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes. earlier in the year, we covered medieval football and mob football, we remember? You know, and yeah. these were these big rolling mall, malls of people. They still Two, do 500. They still do in about three or four places in the UK. And they were played on Easter. Remember, it's Shrove Tide. Yes. Football. The whole town would play. If you were on, born on one side of the river, you played the people born on the other side of the river. Do you know when you unpack that, that story, yeah. I wasn't entirely convinced that the carnage was like you had described. Yeah. So I went. There's no I, rules except you can't murder someone. My God, it was like a. Yeah. It was a riot. It's a riot with a ball in the middle. It's a riot that ends in tears for yeah. everyone involved. Yeah. So back in this time, and you can go back and listen to that if you haven't heard that episode. But around that time, that. Towns would get together and play that once a year, right? And there were no rules and it was like whoever could move the ball and it was just a big rolling mall. Yeah, like 24 hours or something. Someone would go two days in a row, like, you know, and it was like literally the only rule was don't kill anyone, right? (laughs) So out of this, while that was happening, by the 19th century, so getting into the 1820s and around this time, the whole society of England, so there's no organised sport, that was the sport, right? The rest of the sport was considered, if you said, I, I'm a sportsman, it meant you went fox hunting or shot things, basically. <laughs> shot stuff. Shot stuff. There were no no organised sport. Is that a sport? Well, they considered it a sport at the time. Would you do an episode on the fox hunting? Surely there's, there's enough funny to, stories if, oh, there. Oh, probably would. I mean, we'd get Or just shooting, the English. Well, the, the English, like the way they banned or didn't ban certain sports like fox hunting and others, like cockfighting. And all like you know, all that this should sort be of a stuff. demonstration sport. <laughs> Some would know be you're They would ban it depending on whether the rich or the poor did it. That's so correct. If the poor did it, it would be banned. So cockfighting was banned, yeah. but it wasn't because they cared about the animals back then. Yeah. They didn't care at all. That yeah, it was unruly. It was because it was Firing unruly the and the poor. Yeah, but the aristocrats were like, "Well, oh, going shooting a fox is noble. <laughs> we put on these red coats." I'll shoot anything. You know my favourite Prince Philip story? And this is a Melbourne Cup field. <laughs> <laughs> but he went out near where he lives, or yeah. one, of, one of his estates, there was like a kindergarten. Yeah. And all the kids are playing outdoors. And all of a sudden, out of the sky, we're dropping these birds like bang, bang, <laughs> bang. And kids are screaming and running inside. And there's Prince Philip in a neighbouring field just shooting. <laughs> Pheasant or geese or whatever it is, he's shooting out of the sky and they're just dropping. Into the kindergarten. Into a kindergarten. It's, it's raining dead birds. And he just lived his life. He didn't oh, worry. Gosh. He didn't care. It's a good egg. At the same time, so what's happening, that's the way it's always been. Medieval football, yep. no organised sport because most people are in the field working yeah. all summer and then it's winter. They don't have time yeah. to go and play organised or, or energy. organised sport or energy, energy or interest. Go, like, yeah. yeah, their main sport was not starving to death. <laughs> <laughs> not being beaten. Yeah, not, a, yeah, not being lord. killed by a lord. Yeah. So, But by the 19th century, you've got the Industrial Revolution in full swing. You've yeah. got this middle class making a lot of money who aren't the aristocracy yeah. and they're starting to challenge the aristocracy. And a bit of spare time on their hands. They'd spare time. And schools start to become more prevalent because up until this point, most – Rich people, aristocrats, yeah. they'd hire a tutor. So if you had kids, you'd have a tutor that would come and probably live with you, teach them French, that teach them everything, and that was school. There wasn't an organised school. But these schools started to 
um, arrived and they were called public schools. And they were called public because they were not privately owned. They were run by right. trustees in a local community. They become expensive. Still for the well, they become that and for the middle class, these rising middle oh. classes who have a lot of money. Yeah. So these are schools like Eton, Charterhouse, Harrow, Westminster, Winchester, Shrewsbury. And another one in the Midlands is rugby. And rugby is a more upper middle class. It's not as Eton is the upper class one to yeah, this day. The Royals go. Yeah, and all lots of half the prime ministers are from there and everything. But these were non-local schools in that people boarded there. The students usually weren't from the area. They were sent there and they were controlled by trustees. English were good at that, weren't they? They loved not having their kids around, right? <laughs> they nutted that one early. Yeah. But what it means is suddenly got all these boys and they're in this away from home boarding. They're going oh, all boys' schools? All boys. Were all girls? Schools. Nah, girls were not. Yeah. No not, education at all? Not much for the, at this point. Like they start to spring up later. Good old days, later, eh? the, yeah, good old days. It's, like, it's like the Taliban but yeah, back in the yeah. – they didn't want the women. The, so these boys are sitting around. These schools were very in the early days loosely run. Yeah. Right? So we've got this image of them being – you know, really well organized, proper education, right. all these things. These were rough, often brutally violent. Kids left almost Lord of the Flies as maybe one teacher who was paid not very much, who didn't really care. So these <laughs> wasn't are, his passion to teach wasn't children. Wasn't his passion. These were not seen as anyone with money, real money, wouldn't have sent their kids here. Right. We now have this image of them, but when they started, okay. they were rough ads. When right? did all the uh, monks and nuns turn up? Because the Catholic Church had been kicked out of England. This is all run so by the Anglicans. So and they're, not, they're not. It exists, but it's not as full on as the Catholic right. schools in Ireland and places like that. So all the working class people working six days a week. And that was like that till 1850 when there was a factory act. So it leaves these private school boys boarding, a lot of time on their hands, all hanging out together to invent games. Sure. They just start inventing games and playing them because they're bored. This is the early 1820s, early 1830s, 1820s. even a bit before that. Gotcha. Now, up until 1845, no one writes down any of these rules. So every school has its own form of sport. Yes. A game they've invented. Similar in the terrain. It's based on where they can play it. So some are in like fields, some are in courtyards. Some are you know, in railing mm. areas with railing around them. So they all adjust the rules. to like It's like when we were at school, you play up ball or down ball yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And if you've got a big wall, you'll use the wall. If you in. don't, you'll – yeah. So they're all coming up with this. No one's writing them down. Every time a new class comes in, they add or change the rules. Yep. So it's very loose. Sure. There's no modern technology in terms of communication. Everyone's on a horse. So if one school's <laughs> paying – one sport and another one's playing another, they never meet up. So it's not like they need uniform yeah. rules, right? Okay. You just play at your school. So this brings us to rugby school. Rugby school, it's in Warwickshire. It's 100 miles northwest of London in the Midlands. And it's founded in 1567. So very old. It was created because in the will of a guy called Lawrence Sheriff, he left in his will for a local school to educate local boys and it was going to be free of charge to those local boys. So right. he, was a, he was a good guy. Now, he had become rich and famous because he provided spices and groceries to Princess Elizabeth. She was living in exile at Hatfield House and she goes on to become Queen Elizabeth I, the, well, arguably yeah, the greatest gotcha. queen of all time in England. Why is she in exile? Well, because of oh, when... Been a, was it something to do with the Scottish? It was, well, it was the Mary Queen of Scots. Her father was Henry yeah, VIII. It was there was a real, how do you do? real succession fight. She ends up winning. But he, when it was very tenuous looked after her so and so easy. when she becomes queen she remembers who was loyal when things were not good well played sir so she gives him a coat of arms that does all this sort of stuff she um starts sending him gifts he sends her gifts she becomes very successful and so when he dies he draws up this will and it says that we're going to start this school in the town of rugby and the school becomes known as rugby and that it's going to look after children in that area and it's free education all right so the school's set up 1567. It's pretty obscure. No one really knows much about it. It's just a local school, right? So outside of the town of Rugby, yeah, no one knows about it. To give you an idea what these schools are like and when it sort of became well-known, starts to get national attention for yes. the first time, a guy called Henry Ingalls, he was the headmaster from 1794 to 1806. So this is games are being played but they're very disorganised. 
And Henry Ingalls is known for his discipline. And he's given the nickname by the students, the Black Tiger, because he was always miserable and mean. <laughs> that sounds so good. Yeah. Wow, so, that sounds great. So in November 1797, Ingalls is headmaster of rugby. He finds a student, Astley, who's um, in one of the boarding houses, firing court bullets at the study windows of the housemaster. <laughs> So it's kind of like a slingshot kind yeah, of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Bart Simpson of his day. Yeah, but it's actually got gunpowder. So he's using this like little okay. mechanism to well, fire right. these cork bullets at the window. And so the, the headmaster catches The black him, tiger. The black tiger and says to this pupil, Ashley, where did you get the gunpowder from? He said, oh, I got it from a shopkeeper in town called Roel. So the, the headmaster goes in and says, you know, you're selling gunpowder my students and roll the shopkeeper goes i am not and shows him his order book and says look there's no sales to your student he's lying uh, uh. now there's suspicion that he had and he, as if he's going to like write down i'm selling gunpowder to students yeah. so ingles says oh okay it takes the shopkeeper's word over astley the students and has him flogged. that's a typical dispute from the early 1800s yeah and are, him, you selling, are you selling are you selling gunpowder to my, my students, students? <laughs> so he has the boy Astley flogged for lying. Okay. Right? Astley goes back to the boarding house and tells everyone that he's been flogged, they, could, they knew, and tells them the reason why. So his friends that night go out and smash all the windows of Rao's shop. <laughs> okay. Right? Oh, we've got a feud now. So Ingalls, the headmaster, hears of the vandalism and so he confronts all the boys and says all the members of the fifth and sixth form will pay for the damage. You're all, I don't know who right. did it, so you're all paying. Right. The boys decide that the best way forward is to launch a rebellion. <laughs> I just love this story. It's just, no one's lying down in this one. No. A rebellion, uh, like, you say? Yeah. These kids see educate like tutors who they usually have at home and they've been sent to these schools, you know, they see them as beneath their station. It's not like today where there's this sort of respect for the tutor. These are boys that have grown up fairly well off and they see the tutor as like the yeah. hired help and yeah, he's suddenly yeah. punishing them. And that is not the tradition in any of these schools. They seem as socially inferior. So what form does the rebellion take? Well, that Friday after this has all happened, at the end of the week, after the fourth lesson of the day, the boys place a homemade bomb against a school door and blow it off its hinges. Is it just a bit of a warning shot across the bow? Where are they getting the gunpowder? <laughs> exactly. I want to know. There seems to be no shortage of getting gunpowder, right? The following day on the Saturday, uh, it's a half day of school, right? right? The bell rings at the end of the lessons, and the boys got the rest of the day off. Right. Most of the masters or the teachers go home for the day, all right? So the boys use that school bell when it rings as a signal to launch the next stage, the rebellion. With all the most of the teachers gone, they go down to the main building. They break all the windows of the school. Yep. They get all the school's furniture, including the panelling within the school, and they throw it onto the large main field in front of the school and they set it all alight. <laughs> so it's a huge it's a bonfire. bonfire, huge bonfire. They also added Ingalls, the headmaster's books to it. <laughs> Billy plus the school butler. Yeah. So they've got a school butler. Yeah. He rescues some of the more expensive books from the fire. He's trying to tell them off, but they're out of control. There's a passage from the schoolhouse to one of the boarding houses in the main school building. So the boys nail that shut to stop Ingalls, who lived in the boarding house, being able to get out and get into the school. So they nail him into... The Black Tiger's going to be furious. He's furious. So they nail him into... He's <laughs> <It's just, laughs> trapped. Then set it on fire? Yeah, he's a prisoner basically in yeah. the school there's a bonfire of all the furniture of the school happening on the, the boys are oval. Winning this. the boys then retreat to what is known as part of the grounds as the island it's a bronze age burial mound that's surrounded by a water moat up to six feet deep and it's about 10 meters wide so 20 to 30 feet yeah. wide so it's like literally like a moat it's, a and moat. it's got a drawbridge and they pull the drawbridge up so now the boys after setting most of the school sea on fire, uh, sitting on this island. Well done, boys. Ingalls sends messages out to the other teachers saying, you've got to get back here. But they're too far away. Two are fishing in the River Avon and another is out shooting rabbits, so they can't find them. <laughs> so he then sends a message to Mr. Butlin, who's a local banker and he's the town's justice of the peace. And it's market day in rugby, so 
butler us, the horse dealers with their long whips <laughs> to oh, come and assist. Oh, this is escalating. He also finds an army recruitment party that's headed by a sergeant <laughs> and asks them to come. So they, with all their guns, fix bayonets. Oh, boy. And head down to the school to sort this all out. So you've got guys with whips and soldiers with bayonets showing up, right? It's like muck-up day. Yeah. They approach it. Butlin, the special constable of the police, he distracts the boys by literally reading them the right act. So in England, you had to basically read out an act of parliament that was, that's where reading Which, the right act comes from, yeah. They would read it out and then that meant once you read it out, if you didn't stop, they could just basically do whatever they wanted. Beat to. you to death with batons. While he's reading this out, the boys are all watching him. Um, <laughs> the soldiers circle around behind them and cross the moat on the opposite side and take them prisoner <laughs> at bayonet point. Ah, <laughs> so the voice. students are all captured. Ingalls had locked in this house, so he came out and he immediately expelled the ringleaders that had many of the others flogged, right? The parents are furious and he gets sacked. <laughs> <laughs> this is shaping up beautifully. One of the ringleaders, all of the boys that were on this island and led this rebellion go on to be like Anglican priests and high-up soldiers and respectable people. In fact, Authority one, figures. Exactly. One Sir Willoughby Cotton goes on to put down a slave rising in Jamaica later in his life. <laughs> so he's really come full circle, yeah. right? So this is what rugby's like. It is not a good score. Yeah. It is like a rough, well, ready... Two pieces of the Yeah, it's like the rebellion was only one of several that took part at rugby, all the other public schools in this time. In 1690, 20 years earlier, the boys of Manchester Grammar School disagreed violently during a fortnight-long standoff with their masters about the proposed length of the Christmas holiday. <laughs> they locked themselves into the school and the masters out, so they liked to do a siege. Fantastic, yeah. The boys enlisted the aid of townspeople who supplied them with food and firearms. <laughs> well done, a kind of resistance. Yeah, which were used to fire warning shots at anyone who tried to enter the premises. <laughs> This is brilliant. Isn't it just fantastic? Now, Winchester in 1818, another public school, their rebellion ended only after the warden, the head of the school, was held hostage in his rooms overnight by boys armed with axes. Yep. In Maryborough, the college, they had a mutiny and it was timed by the rebels for Guy Fawkes Night and when it was announced to the world with fireworks and the explosion of a barrel of gunpowder behind the headmaster's back. <laughs> There's a lot of gunpowder. There's a lot of gunpowder. There's a lot of shenanigans. There's a, there's a lot of horseplay. So during this period, Eton and Winchester both had six full-scale revolts. Unbelievable. Rugby followed close by with five. It never seemed to have too much consequence, though, did it? No, no, because it was just all the parents were rich and almost every time the headmaster ended up getting sacked. So it's not just rugby. All these schools are places immense violence, brutality, yeah. The boys fight each other. They fight yeah. the teachers. There's very little education going on. And then go on to become at uh, all. seniors. You know, then they the go on to run the empire. So it's no wonder they don't mind putting down the rebellions, you know. Yeah, exactly. They've been growing up. And they are, in all seriousness, these boys are kind of brutalised, right, that this is coming yeah, totally. out of. It's not an overreaction, is that what you're suggesting? As, yeah, and as well as it, these boys are terribly treated. So while they're revolt, rebelling and everything, it's not like they don't have qualms. So at, as late as 1961 in Winchester College, this is 100 years 1961. later, a senior doctor wrote that the records of weight and heights carefully kept over the past seven years showed how our new approach to feeding the boys has led to them being bigger than their predecessors. So basically the boys at these schools were undernourished. Well done, Because they weren't fed properly. Oh, feeding helps. So... In 1828, after all this has been going down, yep. all the English public schools have got terrible. Like Eton now is like you want to send your kids there, sure. blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the way the rich. At this point, no one with money would send a kid to a public right. school. It's, if you can't afford a tutor, that's where you send your kid or you don't want them around. Yeah. <laughs> and they're horrible places and they're terrible. Okay. Ed and their education outcomes are horrendous, right? You're not going to end up smart. Yep. In 1828, a new headmaster arrives at rugby and his name is Thomas Arnold. And he goes on to revolutionise not only the school, but he sets up a whole new model for the English public school. The reason is he'd gone to Winchester College and he knew how brutal these schools yeah. were, right? On his first night at Winchester, 
this is Arnold when he was a boy, he knelt down next to his bed when they're all going to sleep to pray and all the other boys decided that this was silly and beat the living daylights out of him. <laughs> so this is the sort of places yeah. they are. He hated the way the schools were run and so he decided I'm going to change it as headmaster. So he reduces the systemic cruelty. Mm. He makes the pupils very busy. So he realises these riots and revolts and all this. Yeah. He's, they're not busy enough. So he puts in this huge curriculum of Latin and Greek and so all these cl- the classics that the English now talk about that the upper class all To stop them burning follow. the joy to the ground. Yeah, he, he makes you have to learn Latin, you have to learn Greek, you have to study you know, the Romans, you have to. So it wasn't br- the pursuit of knowledge. It was to stop the incinerator. He brings this all in. It's not practical learning. Like it's not like learning how to do, like, do bookkeeping or something. It's like. I told you Latin was pointless. <laughs> but he's the guy that it's starts It's filling it in time. It's filler. It is because they're all. So he decides that he also revamps the prefix system. So the prefix who were previously leading revolts and rebellions. He gets them to basically be the heads Jump of the ship. school and come and have dinner with him. That's a smart move. Yeah, he gets them to like show leadership. He gets the ringleaders. To become your leaders of the school and you've got power, your job is to keep the boys in and order. wield it in their direction. Yeah, and, and, and also this is the 1820s. He doesn't Brilliant. care. They beat them up if you have to, but you're yeah, in charge. Totally. You can't get in trouble basically. I'm expecting you to put discipline yeah. into the boys, right? So he does all of that. He wasn't that into sport, but he suddenly realised, look, Sport's a good way to keep these guys busy. Yeah. Because he realized that a lot of them were like fighting with local boys or poaching and doing all these yeah. dodgy things. He said, if they're playing sport a lot, it'll burn off all this energy. I know exactly what I've got 11 year old boys, yeah. twin boys, and you've got to run them into the ground. Yeah. Otherwise, or, or you're they'll, yeah, you're cooked. So his period as headmaster is this revolution for not yeah. just rugby. Suddenly everyone wants to send their kids to rugby and he becomes this huge figure. There's a book published in 1857 called Tom Brown's School Days. This is a famous yes. book. Harry Potter is based on it. All these, you know, or every St. Trinian's, all these books set in public really? schools are based on Tom Brown's School Days. It was the biggest novel of its time. Everyone read it. Well, I'm going to go read it. Arnold was a character in it because it was written by a former student at rugby. It has a whole chapter on the game of rugby in it and it's all about muscular Christianity. It's about raising boys to be good Christians but tough, right? Perfect for the new British Empire. like a movie about this with, this with the salty old guy. There's thousands of movies. Stephen Fry played Arnold in the yeah, most recent version. So, yeah, there's like about five. So Tom Brown's School Days is like everything. Harry Potter with the houses and the way it's all run is a magical version of this book. This book is what created all of that kind of stories, right? Suddenly because everyone's reading this book in England and in the empire, suddenly everyone's heard of rugby school and they've heard of this sport of rugby that is played in the thing. Suddenly there's this interest in it. So much so that Baron de Cobertain, who we know created the The Olympics, visited rugby. It was after Arnold had died but when he went to Arnold's tomb, which is in the school chapel at rugby, he said he was looking at the very cornerstone of the British Empire and he said that he was the founder of athletic chivalry and this is what he was going to base the Olympic Games on. So rugby has gone from being wow. a school that no one knows, it's known for rioting, Yes. to this is this new, all the other schools start copying the style of you don't treat the boys as badly. <laughs> you teach them classics but you get them in organised yeah. sport and, we, and we'll start treating it. So this was how big it is. It became a huge thing. Did that become the model? That became the model everywhere, right, for these rich schools. So popular was it all. Before it had been rugby in the will, you'd remember, was actually set up to be free for the local boys. Yes. Suddenly all these paying students are coming right. because they want to go there and it becomes a really rich school. Like so all these public schools. the do. elites now or are they still it's moving. No, it's moving into the elites because suddenly it's seen as this is a good education. Yeah. This is a good thing to go and do. And so much so that they actually decide we're not going to educate the free local boys anymore and they create a separate school called the Lawrence Sheffield Grammar School which down still the exists today down the road for the local boys and yeah. rugby becomes a rich sort of thing. Yeah. So while this rugby game has been played in some form or other for possibly 100 years before, 200 yes. years before, but never written down and always changing, no one took much interest in it, Arnold passes away 
and suddenly people start getting interesting in actually writing down the rules of this game. And so in 1845, the rugby rules are written down. Yep. And it's the first time ever like basically a sport's been codified, has been the rules have been written down. It's never happened before. So football's, football's in, done at rugby at the school. So soccer hasn't been invented yet. No other sports have written down rules. Rugby is no the first No organised ball sport. No. And so this is the first time. So writing down the rules is kind of a powerful thing because suddenly yeah. you can pass the rules around to people and say this is the game we play, right? So this is the first time in sport that we're moving out of that mob football or disorganised game that students just yeah. make up to an actual written A game with one. a constitution. Yeah. So three pupils write this down. And it's not really a full proper list of rules because it assumes you know how the game plays. It more clarifies right. bits of it. It's for people that are at rugby school. It's for right. students that are at rugby school. So there's a lot of reference to things like certain trees that you have to avoid. You know, <laughs> it mentions the island that right. they were yeah. writing on. Um, a lot of the rules are about how it's illegal to forge sick notes to get out of playing. <laughs> Because <laughs> the whole school has to play. It's yeah. only in case of extreme emergency should anyone be permitted to leave the close till the game is finished. That's Fantastic. one of the rules, right? So it's written up. So in 1845, we suddenly have these set rules. Now, the rules don't refer to rugby as we know it now, right? right. It's There's no reference to whether you can pick up and run with the ball or not. There's We're not there yet. We're not there yet. There is one that says you can run in a goal, which means you can run into the end, which suggests you can pick up the ball. And so this is sent through. There's 37 rules, but you wouldn't recognise it. And you and I reading it wouldn't understand yeah. it because it's very in place. So producing these written rules, though, is kind of amazing because suddenly other schools sort of hear through word of mouth that these boys at rugby have written down their game that they own. Yep. And so suddenly the word gets out. It's seen that the writing it down gives this – it's happening at a time where science and everything's coming on. So it's seen as this rational – it's bringing order to the mob football games. Yes. Here is a more, you a know, blueprint. a blueprint yeah. for a, but a more organised, much like Britain sees themselves bringing order to the rest of the world where, you know, this is highly controversial but it's how the empire saw it is yeah. we are bringing order to chaos where there's barbarians, we're yeah. bringing gotcha. this rational scientific thought. It's seen as part of that. It's a civilising, mm. rather than the rough and tumble of mobs, yeah. we have this okay. these rules, right? So the boys at Eton College hear of this and they see themselves as the aristocrats and they see rugby, which is funny because rugby is now seen as a very upper-class yes. sport. They see rugby as like this middle-class hopeless school yeah. and there's a rivalry. And so they write down their rules two years later in 1847. They have two games, one called the field game and one called the wall game. And the field game they write down. And the field game that they believe is superior has a set of rules that is – almost the complete opposite of rugby. So rugby seems to be, at this point, it's very barbaric still. You can charge, tackle people, you can kick them in the shins, you can do all sorts of things. Mm. The Eden boys look at it as mainly kicking and very little handling, so right. very little touching of the ball. You can you catch the ball but then you put it on the ground and then kick it forward. That's how they play. Pardon me, Your Majesty. Yeah, exactly. They see dribbling with the ball on the ground as more important. Uh, so you're starting to get these two very different with Eton boys having one version and then you've got the yeah. rugby having the other. The other public schools all start to write down all their rules. So by 1855, Shrewsbury's done theirs. A few years later, Harrow do it, then Westminster and Charterhouse. So there's about 15 different public school written down games yes. and they're all fairly different. So everyone's like, yep. there's not a set rules. And this isn't really a problem except these boys all go to Cambridge and Oxford. So they all go there and they all suddenly uh, want to play together, but it's like no one speaks the same language. Yeah, that's right. So fist fights start breaking out whenever you try and organise a game of football, right? right? Because the Eden boys want to not pick up the ball and the rugby guys. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah they're all true. So it said the result was dire confusion. <laughs> Said one student who was there. Every man played the rules he'd been accustomed to at public school. I remember how the Eton men howled at the rugby men for handling the ball. So this was this huge, you know, issue at the time. So a former Shrewsbury pupil, another public school, Edgar Montague, he went about setting up in 1840 a game at Cambridge. 
that he tried to use all the different rules and come up with like a universal right. set of rules, right? And this is how like a lot of other sports go. Australian rules football is an attempt to bring all these different yes. publics because this is happening at the same time in Australia. Correct. They've got all the different rules and they're trying to figure out what a game should be and come up with a hybrid set because it's yeah. not that there's no rules now. There's too many rules oh, and yeah. no one can agree. Yeah. A few years later, a few other guys sit down and in 1848 they draw up a bunch of rules and it's by a bunch of people from different ones and they come up with a set of rules called the Cambridge Rules. This is in 1848. There's no record of these. Our knowledge comes from another letter referring to them later on. In, But basically they're printed as the Cambridge Rules. They're sent out and distributed in Cambridge at the university and people seem to not mind them. These are the rules that Cambridge start to play with. Which, which is, has incorporated a bit of everything. A bit of everyone. It's a compromise so, yeah, kind of. It's a compromise. game kind of. There's a bit of running with the ball. There's a lot of kicking. Yeah, there's all these a bit of that. things. Yeah. It's so the people that come up with it are students from Rugby, Eton College, Harrow, Marlborough, Westminster and Shrewsbury. So it's all, it's a mismatch. Yeah. But these Cambridge rules suddenly are here and seen as quite important. When you see what they are, they're basically, if you were watching this sport, to our eyes it would look strange, but it would basically be a bit of a cross between soccer and Australians ruled football. So you could mark a ball and then you'd get a free kick, so much like Australian rules, but then you would have to put the ball on the ground and kick it. There was a tight offside rule so you couldn't run anywhere. So there was all different sort of well, but it was a bit like a soccer still hasn't been soccer. invented. No, nah. mm. you weren't allowed to hold a player or push them with your hands or trip them over, but all charging is legal. So you could on or off the ball, you could run into anyone. <laughs> so there's always about to say it. Yeah, this is still a violent thing. A throw-ins delivered at right angles to the pitch, much like a rugby union yeah. line-out is now. Um, teams change ends after every goal is scored. Really, and there's two posts with a tape for a crossbar. And that's the way it basically works. Try? Right? Uh, it was sort of like they just call it a goal. There was different words for it depending on what school you went to. Sure. You know, Oxford was a bit different. They seemed to have a bit, but rugby seemed to be the one kind of getting popular there. Right. right? So you've got all these young guys, uni students, arguing massively over these games they play. Yeah. The rest of the world is like, we're a bit busy for this. <laughs> <laughs> We're fighting wars and all this yeah, sort of stuff, yeah, right? So yeah. it's just this has just been played out by rich private school and university yeah, kids, sure. right? At this point, so around the eighteen forties, though, you suddenly have all this rapid expansion of railways in Britain. So you've got four hundred forty-two railway-related acts passed by Parliament, and you've got more than two thousand miles of track being laid. So it's suddenly you can get around easier and so suddenly people all these, aren't as isolated as they used to be yeah so people yeah. are moving around and so all these public school boys have either gone to uni or they've left public school and they're now starting to move around the country and wherever they go they start to set up they want to play the club. game they played whenever they so it might be the cambridge rules it might be the harrow rules it might be the rugby rules it's yeah you know it's, it's just wherever they happen to go right so it means basically it's spreading and there's this thing that gets referred to at the time as the games cult. So it's seen as a cult, which is yeah. this ideology that comes up that football and other games weren't just a substitute for undesirable activities. <laughs> so it's no longer just to stop rioting. Yeah. It is incredibly important because it teaches loyalty, self-sacrifice, unselfishness, cooperation, yeah. the spirit of the corpse. Team play. All that sort of stuff, being a good loser, sucking it up, all this. Yeah. These are seen by the British as suddenly this is what we need for our country and our empire. We want people like this. Yeah. They're tough, hard, don't complain, but get on with it. chivalrous. Still chivalrous, all that sort of stuff, right? So they start spreading this everywhere and all these clubs start spreading up and rugby is probably the most popular of all the rules. And that happens just naturally? Just or they naturally. just don't go out and get to more communities than everyone else it's sort of naturally and because they're the first and because of tom brown's school days and all this the book you know that was they have a certain place they've got a certain place so people sort of recognize it so there's a rugby club called the barnes club it was founded in 1839 guys hospital football club was formed in 1843 so these are like seen as the oldest are they, still, are they still going in various forms some of them around but some argue that they're not 
continuously been around. Oh, we could get into a whole nother uh, episode about right. what's wrong. So all, neither their dates were very well verified too. So people, so some people argue, well, they're not as old. And some people argue like, you know, some of the Australian football clubs like Melbourne and Geelong yes. are older than some of these in terms of continually operating. Yeah. Um, others say one's in Ireland and various things. So you can get into a big argument about this. Sure. But very early on, there's two big schools of debate around all these games. So all these games are being built up and there starts to be, well, how can we have one set of rules so we could all play each other? Becomes like it did happen at Cambridge. This starts to happen across the whole country. We all want to play each other. We're all created football clubs, but often we can't play anyone. What are the terms? Yeah, what are the terms? It's like when Australian rules football plays Irish Gaelic football. Yeah, or, and a hybrid's and ha- created. And you have to go, all right, these are the rules. Exactly. We'll stop doing this. Yeah. This That's is worth two points. Yeah, we'll right. give up this part of it. So they're doing that, but it's often worked out often the day before they play. So it's not like you can even train for it. It's yeah. like it's almost negotiated every time <laughs> you have to it's play. Negotiation, rules. Yeah. yeah. In the newspapers, there starts to be all these letters coming in going, yeah, here's my suggestion for a set of rules and we desperately need one. It becomes this big debate. Yes. And a lot of it is, you know, there was a letter in 1861 to The Field, which is the country gentleman's newspaper. <laughs> I know you're a subscriber to this day. Oh, I love it. And it had somewhat, what happens when a game of football is proposed at Christmas amongst a party of young men assembled from different schools? The Eton man is enamoured by his own rules and turns up his nose at rugby as not sufficiently aristocratic, while the rugbyan retorts that bullying and sneaking are not to his taste and that he is not afraid of his shins or of a maul or a scrimmage. <laughs> so basically what's happening is you could put all of them. Parochial. So Eton and the Cambridge rules and a bunch of other schools are on one side, which is this skill, not handling the ball kind of approach. That's heading towards soccer, right? That's heading towards soccer. And then you've got rugby's rules and a few other schools that are similar to rugby's rules that are much more yeah. like tackling, running with the ball, yeah. all this. And the two are, are trying to agree. They're not yep. necessarily opposed. They could have merged, right? And they're trying to work it out. So Eton, Shrewsbury, Harrow, they're sort of on one side. There's another group, Westminster and Charterhouse. They have a game that doesn't have much handling but has less of an offside rule. So it's not like rugby's offside rule where you've got to be behind the ball. Yes. You can pass the ball forward, which is a bit like soccer. Yep. So the Eton and those ones kind of join with the Westminster and Charterhouse in this non-handling game and you've got rugby on the other side, right? And so there's this big thing. Now, these have all come up. To this day, people argue, is soccer better? Is rugby better? Is Australian rules better? Is yes. American football better? What is funny about them is the only reason for all these differences is it all came out of these original public schools. The reason people preferred certain rules is they grew up with different rules. Yes. And the reason the rules existed were, you know, at Forest School, which was one public school, matches are played where there was chestnut trees and iron railings around the field. So you tended not to want to do tackling and running with the ball, right? It made sense, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You don't want to. Yeah. Others like Charterhouse and Westminster, they played literally on bricks. You know, they were in the courtyard. So they're not. So they're line. not tackling. They're, so it's not that they're weak or tough or whatever. No, it, it was adapted just, to their environment. They adapted to their environment, right? Rugby had was one of the few that had a big open. Had field. a big open field. Go for your grass. life. So it was like for British bulldogs. Yeah. So when people kind of get really fired up these days about is soccer better or rugby, they're having these arguments that go all the way back to teenage boys deciding inventing yeah. a game in a, in a courtyard in or a court on a field. field. That's great. Right? So they still had this desire to try and reunite these two types of styles and into one that everyone agrees on. But there was one problem, aside from the handling and running with the ball or not touching the ball, there was another argument that really divided people and this was called hacking, right? So hacking became probably the bigger issue than whether you could pick up the ball and run with it right. or not. Because even these Eton games, what becomes soccer, you could still catch the ball, remember? You just yeah, yeah. have to then have to put, put it, it on the ground. And, um, so it wasn't full no hands at this point. Yeah. They both agreed that you can catch the ball. It was whether you could then run with the ball or not. And whether if you run with the ball, therefore you need to be able to tackle because otherwise it, sure. it's just someone oh, just runs just in. Run, run in. So hacking was one of the main features of the rugby game. It's mentioned four times in the 1845 regulations, right? It's a tactic that involves basically it's two different types. One is 
tripping an opposing player by kicking them in the shins. <laughs> that was one. And the other is kicking people in the shins when the ball's in a mall or a ruck. Gotcha. It's all kicking in the shins. Yeah. Hacking means kicking in the shins, right? None of that. You're allowed to do it below the knee and above the ankle. So you can't stamp on their foot. You can't kick them in, you know, in the nuts or something yeah. or their head, but you can kick their shins as much as ankle. you want, right? So they had lots of rules over it. Now, the Eaton Field Games basically ban it. They don't have it. Yeah. So they don't like it. So hacking is known as a lot of it is they say if you're really good at hacking, and that means when someone's got the ball and is running with it, instead of trying to tackle them, you just kick them in the shin. And if you're good at it, it says you can bring them down on their face like you'd shot a rabbit. <laughs> so they nice became, hack. Yeah, so they became very good at this. And it was also used before referees were introduced to make sure people, if anyone went offside, you punish them by kicking them in the shins, right? <laughs> so this was quite needed in rugby because you often needed to get the ball out of a huge yeah. scrum. So kicking everyone in the shins was a good way of good way moving them on, right? So it was seen as a good thing. This gets movement of the ball, yeah. right? And at this time, people sometimes you have 150 people playing at once, not 15 right. aside, right? So this is a that was all seen as big, innocent fun at rugby. Like there was no idea that this was brutal. There was a guy called WHD Rouse, and he wrote a history of rugby school. And he said these scrummages provide an excellent opportunity for boys to pay off old scores. They would join forces in a deliberate attack on an unpopular rival. Oh. A premeditated. Premeditated. We're going to kick the shits out of this guy. <laughs> this practice had the effect of curbing the worst excesses of any bullying or overweening despotic senior boys. Such attacks could be barbarous. And it was hacking employed by this purpose, which got banned by the headmaster at one point, right? So this was like they would settle scores by it. And oh, the yeah. headmasters often saw this as, well, let it, it go. Like in ice hockey. They'll sort it out. If you want to do the right, wrong thing, someone will fight you. Yeah. And it will sort itself. It will what have we learned here today? <laughs> exactly. What have we learned today? One of the one rules was you couldn't get someone else to hold someone while you hacked them. Yeah. So it was sort of, that was frowned <laughs> upon. Yeah. You could grab someone and just start hacking them. Occasionally, the players would all ask for a break. There's no ref, but to each other, just to hack. Just stop, to hack. stop the game. Stop the game. Just so we let's, can let's hack. Let's all hack each other's and just hack away at each other's shins. So is that this stop the game the ball. known as rugby? Yeah. Wow. So this is what they would do. It was considered bad form to back off from a challenge to be hacked. So you, right. you so I might kick you in the shins, you kick me in the shins, I and we go respond. we go until one of us can't do it anymore. And it was a way of settling a score. And it was seen as bad form to either Back off or blub to the teachers. Yes, it's, it's, it's like a, this is like a prison philosophy. Yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. It isn't was it? totally yeah. like so. Even though these schools were better than they had been, this was seen as you need to do this right. You need to, you've got to be tough. This and there's no it. complaining. And this is why these guys like pretty brutalized a lot of them, right? Yeah. Like they, you know, they go. These guys go on to become governor generals of colonies and stuff and lead <laughs> armies, right? After one match, the Fords from the losing sides were said to have been so badly injured. That their headmaster sat down on the grass and wept like a child. This was written up in the it used to hunt, this up. well, it was written up in the official history by Rouse about this guy crying after a match because it was so brutal. And he said of the headmaster, um, not to make too much of the headmaster crying, because for the gentleman in question evidently had a gift of tears and used to weep over a Greek play in form. <laughs> So yeah. they just had no, no sympathy, no no, sympathy no, no. right? Yeah, just get on with it. Um, another time one of the boys there tried to take some of the injured players after a game into the schoolhouse to be treated. The schoolhouse butler looked at them at the front door and they're all like, you know, being kicked, their sh broken shins, everything. And he said it was weakness if they were going to come in and be treated and said to them, let them bury their own dead. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Get back out there, you lot. This is incredible. So this is what it was like. It was like yeah. they just didn't. A headmaster, Dr. Frederick Temple, he later was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he was asked by a visitor who was watching one of the games of the boys, said, you know, have you ever stopped a match? And Temple replied, never short of manslaughter. <laughs> but even Temple started to go, I think it's getting a bit far. Yeah. And he started to say to the rugby boys, you need to calm down. 
but he became very unpopular because it was always seen as the boys made up the rules. Teachers were Jesus. not involved. Stay right? out. None of your business. But at this point what was happening is while rugby, the school had always been the host of and the centre of all the rules, at this point there was all these, because students now were old enough that they'd gone out into the world, they'd gone to Cambridge, they'd gone to Oxford and now they're out setting up their own clubs. These clubs might have used the rugby rules but weren't run by the rugby school and yes. so they were starting to evolve into their own form. So rugby, the school started to have rules that were out of touch with the broader thing. Yep. So the 1845 rules, as we know, they were very incomplete and they presumed you knew about the game. Yep. One of the rugby's, the maths tutor, Francis Elliott Kitchener, arranged for students to sit down in 1962 and write a better set of rules that even if you had never been to rugby or yes. you could understand them. So it was a proper set of rules. And he wrote these all down. And these were sent out everywhere. So suddenly you had clubs following these rules in Liverpool, Manchester, Sale, all these places. And it's spreading to all these other public yeah. schools, right? So this leads to a massive problem for all the other Eaton's sports and all this because suddenly there is a set of rules that exists from rugby school yes. that very clearly lays out how to play how a game play from game. scratch, easily disseminated, easily go out to yeah. everyone. And it has in it hacking and it yeah. has in it handling the ball. Sure. This leads to a national call that we need to set up a new set of rules that everyone can play and everyone can agree on. The people that both the Eaton side and the rugby side, yes. how can we all come together outside of the school system and create a Correct. new set of rules? And so in 1863, a group of men get together at the Freemason Tavern in London ah. and they sit down to form something called the Football Association yes. that exists to this day as the FA, you know, EFA yeah. Cup to work out a set of rules that makes both rugby and the emerging game of soccer please everyone. And in the next episode, we'll see how well that goes. <laughs> I am absolutely – I knew none of that and that is awesome. I love the development and birth of anything we now take for granted. Yeah. But what a difficult birth. Let's go and have a hack with each other. Well, I'm going to hack you <laughs> to death. And if you go to the principal, I will. I promise I won't tell and I won't even seek medical treatment. <laughs> well done. Well, I can't wait for the next instalment. Thank you once again, Titus O'Reilly. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. We had an absolute ball and we are so thankful for you all listening. If you're interested, we do have a membership program that gets you a bonus podcast every week. And to maybe incentivize you to join up, here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. What do you watch on TikTok? Uh, everything. I love it. Now the times I'll just pour myself a, a warm milk at night and sit back and, and watch scroll. TikTok. You'd be doing some of those like famous people dancing. Is that you? Uh, yeah, I, I learn all the TikTok dancers. All the time. There's nothing more than people love than a, a middle-aged man dancing. They just yeah. love it. <laughs> that would blow it up. Is it the Chinese going, all right, I think we have to abandon the whole TikTok thing. We've yeah. seen too We're actually learning too much. I think me dancing on TikTok could lead to a butterfly effect that brings down the Communist Party in China. <laughs> what a story. What a story what that a would story be. What a story in world events. And that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.